We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. We're available on Apple, Spotify, Podbeam, Amazon Music, and wherever you find your podcasts. Do you know someone who not only considers themselves special, but looks down on everybody else? Do they always have to be right, but can turn nasty and put you down? Have you been tempted to Google, what are the signs of narcissism? Perhaps you're already convinced that your partner, your parent or boss is a narcissist. Maybe you've been told by someone that you are a narcissist or secretly wondered it about yourself. The term is thrown around so much these days with this or that public figure being labelled as one, I thought it time for a deep dive into the subject. Narcissism, a helpful diagnosis or something to turn an ugly situation even worse. My witness today is Ruth Ann Harper, who's a clinical psychologist who specialises in relationships and the issues of narcissism. So, welcome Ruth. How did you find your way to this specialism? Well, thank you very much for having me. You know, I fell into it, really. I spent most of my career so far working in the NHS and have always worked with what are called the Cluster B personality disorders mostly what would be termed borderline personality disorders. And there's a whole debate about diagnosis anyway. And then I was working in private practice and I had a handful of people I was working with where there were some issues of narcissism. There was some grandiosity, there was some sense of entitlement and they were challenging to work with. And at the time I was looking for a supervisor. And the pandemic had just started and I thought, hmm, I'm not limited to supervisors I can meet face to face. So I actually contacted someone I'd done training with and had looked up to for many years, Wendy Berry, who developed schema therapy for narcissism with Jeffrey Young and asked if she would supervise me for those people I was working with. And that turned into a really fruitful supervisory relationship And then I mentioned it to my colleagues who make referrals to me and they were like, well, (laughs) we have plenty of referrals for you. And it just kind of exploded. And I think when I started working clinically, I wasn't so familiar. I was familiar with the research and clinical literature on narcissism. I wasn't so familiar with the internet presentation of narcissism. And obviously I started to look and I was quite shocked at just the level of vitriol and quite hateful presentations of narcissism, as well as some quite helpful aspects of it where people were really beginning to understand that perhaps their parent or their partner or their ex-partner really was abusive to them in quite emotional and psychological ways. So it's often not obvious physical abuse. There's often a lot more psychological and emotional cruelty to it. So that's kind of how I fell into it. And then I was like, well, let me try and put out some more nuanced content about narcissism that actually really reflects 
what narcissism is and what narcissistic personality disorder, which is a disorder of narcissism is. So I started doing that. Uh, and that's kind of how I've fallen into it. And it's certainly a really interesting area. So let's sort of start with some sort of definitions. So what is the difference? I mean, what I've always found helpful is the difference between narcissistic traits and having a narcissistic personality disorder. Is that a helpful place to start for you or is that going to muddy the water? No, I think that's a really helpful place to start. And I would start even before narcissistic traits. Narcissism as a concept has evolved massively over many, many years. So there was obviously the Greek myth of Narcissus who... So tell us the myth, because I think actually getting the full myth is a very good place to start. So thank you for bringing that up. We have to remember when you tell us the myth that there is not only Narcissus, Narcissus, but he had a lover as well. And so we can look at this in a relational sort of kind of way. So tell us the myth. So the myth is that Narcissus was born. He was born of a rape. His mother was raped by a river god. And his mother was told, she sought help. She asked how she could help her son live a long life. And a prophet told her her son would live a long life if only he didn't see himself. And so she never let him see his reflection. So he doesn't know who he is. And he is exceptionally attractive. And many people fall in love with him and he rejects them all. And then one day he comes across a lake of water and he sees his reflection and he falls in love with his reflection. And he's mesmerised by his own image. And of course, he doesn't know it's himself. And he spends many, many hours just gazing at himself, trying to embrace his lover, which of course is just a reflection. And that horrifying reality when you try to embrace it and it just dissipates in your hands. So that's him. And eventually he pursues his lover into the lake and dies. But he does have a real lover, Echo, he doesn't does. he? He does. So the original myth, and I kind of almost think there's a, you know, there's a poetry to this as well, that we always talk about the myth of Narcissus. And the original myth was Echo and Narcissus. She came first. Tell us about Echo. So Echo was a, a garden nymph. She was sprightly. She was full of life. She was full of energy. And her and her friends like to have fun with Zeus. And Zeus comes to earth. He's having a great time with Echo's friends. And his wife, Hera, gets suspicious. And so she comes to see what he's up to. And Echo sees her coming and distracts her with chatter. And Hera realises what Echo is doing and she curses her and she takes away her voice, except she can repeat the last words someone else has spoken. So Echo falls in love with Narcissus and she's seeking a genuine connection with him, but all she can do is repeat back to Narcissus what he says. And she irritates him and he rejects her and she also flees in shame and Different stories have different endings, but I quite like the idea that she flees in shame and hides in a cave. And that's where we hear her today. And I think this sort of shows a little bit the relationship of somebody who is with a narcissist. They get sort of trapped in just reflecting black and echoing the glory, and I'm now doing um, finger quotes, of the person who's in love with themselves. 
I mean, I think that's the sort of story around narcissism, that they're in love with themselves. And there is, I think, when people are in relationships with people who are high in pathological narcissism, they will describe an invisibility. Like, I'm erased. I'm nothing. My opinions don't count in this relationship. My goals, my wishes are diminished. I'm in the thrall of this other person's priorities and often their fantasies of success or love or achievement. So let's look at the idea of narcissistic traits then. Mm. So if you go right back into the early literature, the first mention of narcissism was Ellis Havelock, and he used it to describe It sounds like basically compulsive masturbation. So patients who couldn't stop touching themselves, couldn't stop kissing themselves. And he described it as basically self-love and it was a very sexualized form of self-love. And then bizarrely, the concept was taken up by Freud rather briefly and he completely desexualized it. And he referred to narcissism as a kind of self-focus and a self-orientation that we all have and that's necessary in childhood development that we see ourselves as having agency. We see ourselves as the centre of the world. And that's actually what gives us the impetus to try to do things for ourselves, to get a reaction from our caregivers. And what he talks about, it's actually quite beautiful in Freud. I'm not the biggest fan of Freud mostly, but he talks about how as children grow and develop, they pawn off a part of their narcissism in favour of relationship. And they begin to interact more with the caregiver. So we need a healthy ego. We need to know this is me and that is you. And, you know, I'm important. It's, a, it's okay for me to ask for what I need. So we need a healthy ego. And where does a healthy ego finish and narcissistic traits begin? So after Freud, and there's a beautiful quote from Freud, actually, that he who loves becomes humble, mm. which I think is really lovely. So after Freud, the concept was taken up by Heinz Kohart, and he was a psychoanalyst working in Vienna. And he was at the turn of the century working in Vienna. It was a very vibrant city. It was full of the performing arts and creativity. And he began to describe what I think we would see more as narcissism today a kind of achievement orientation, performance, a focus on outward presentation and grandiosity. And he had a quite sympathetic view of it. He could see the downsides of it and there were aspects of it that could be problematic for people, but he also saw advantages in it and that it was something to keep in check rather than something to get rid of. And he and Otto Kernberg, who's still alive today, still writes prolifically on the subject of narcissism. Kernberg came later and he was also working in Vienna, but at the time that the Third Reich was rising. And he began to talk about narcissism as much more pathological, much more sinister, much more Machiavellian, much more destructive, linking it with Nazism and really seeing it as a, a destructive force. And throughout the 20th century, Kernberg and Kohart had many, actually very fruitful debate. I mean, these were wonderful debates and, you you know, they were really, they shed a lot of light rather than being in great opposition to each other. But there was these kind of two sides of narcissism, which is the more creative, 
to some extent grandiose, but quite creative side and the much, much more destructive and harmful side of it. And I think I tend to see it as a spectrum of healthy narcissism at one end, where you have a healthy sense of yourself. You may have a slightly rosy view of yourself, a slightly more positive view of yourself than is entirely accurate, but that has advantages. That's what makes people start podcasts and pursue ambitions and create things. And what would the internet be without it? Exactly. So we need a degree of that. If you think of that as the middle, at the sort of, you can have a lack of that. You can have a lack of self-esteem, a lack of a positive sense of yourself. You can have a really nasty inner critic, you know, to also, as well as having an inner critic, have a a rosy friend. That seems quite good to me. So I, I like the idea of this spectrum, but we're beginning to get past the point of, how should we put it, the majority of the population, and we're getting more into something that is more destructive. Yeah. So as you then climb up to the other end of the spectrum, you begin to get narcissistic traits, which may be a lack of empathy for other people and an inability to tolerate yourself as being anything less than extraordinary, a need to achieve and to perform and to value yourself only on the basis of your achievements and your performance in some area. And that might be in your career. It might be in your physical appearance. It might be in your fame. It might be in your intelligence. It can also, and not infrequently, be in the area of your relationships, a fantasy of ideal love, which of course can be catastrophic for people's relationships whether that's a parent-child relationship or a friendship or a romantic relationship. So you have to be a wonderful parent. And actually, if you don't actually meet your own internal desire to be, you know, this wonderful parent, this beacon of light, you can start to get very angry with anybody who doesn't join the chorus of approval. And you can also be very angry with other people, for example, the other parent who doesn't actually agree 100% with your way of parenting. Or with the child who does not conform to your vision of a perfect child, who doesn't, you know, who has their own opinions or has their own vulnerabilities. I mean, really highly narcissistic people really struggle if their child is struggling because they see it as such a reflection of them. So it becomes, well, I'm not a good enough parent. I failed in some way because my child is not this picture of perfection. And so they can actually become very punitive towards the child in that situation in some cases. Yeah, I see quite a lot of clients who say, you know, my relationship with my my mother or my father was fine up to about sort of 11 or 12 when I began to have opinions of my own. And then it went very nastily downhill from there onwards. Yeah. Is that something you recognise too? Yeah, and I think it's just the the sort of, uh, the child at that age, I guess, is no longer reflecting back to the parent. They have their own opinions, they have their own mind, and they really have their own mind. And they're perhaps a little less concerned about pleasing you. You know, little kids love to please and get praised. Teenagers are a little bit more willing to uh, offend. <laughs> so yeah, that that can be a real problem for a parent who's high in narcissism. So when does having narcissistic traits or being high in narcissism actually cross over into what is categorised as a disorder? Well, that's when it is causing 
your it's really interfering with your quality of life. It's disabling. It's preventing you from having good relationships. It's preventing you from being able to have a meaningful career. And I mean, there's a bit of a debate around this because there are, you know, I've certainly worked with people who are very high in narcissism and they can excel in one area. So they might be fantastic at work. They can be very creative. They can be entrepreneurial. They can be leaders in their field. They're often mavericks. And I sometimes tell the story that I had a boss who, in retrospect, I think was quite narcissistic, but in a not bad sense of the word, you know, because he he was brilliant. He really was brilliant at what he did. And being his junior, I was uh, just getting into psychology at the time, had many perks because he got me into conferences and lectures and training events that most people at my level didn't get near. But I guess there was a downside too. What was the downside? Well, he would have said himself that his the impact of his work meant his family were often annoyed at him because of the amount of time he'd spend at the office and the importance he gave to his work over other things. But he was very open with that, actually. <laughs> and that wasn't a secret. <laughs> no. And I don't think he would meet, I don't even think he'd come close to meeting criteria for narcissistic personality disorder, but you can kind of see how, if that was to become more extreme, that he might. And he was a very fair and reasoned employer. He was very, you know, very supportive actually in in many ways. But what I've also seen sometimes is that these can be quite cruel buffers. They expect perfection of their employees. They have really not much tolerant for their employees' needs and weaknesses and don't see much point in supporting an employee or cutting them some slack if they're going through a difficult time. So armchair Googling of, you know, what are the seven signs of a narcissist? What do you think of that idea? It's a double-edged sword. You know, I have certainly met people for whom beginning to understand that this other person who was so hurtful and abusive to me had an issue of narcissism and to understand something about where that comes from, to understand that it wasn't their behavior that created the other person's pattern. And that can be really helpful. But what I've also seen are people grossly misdiagnosing. I work with couples as well as with individuals. And it's not infrequent that I'll get a couple coming where one person is convinced the other person is a narcissist and they're interpreting everything their partner does in that light. And you can imagine what that does to the relationship. I know because I get that one as well. I You've say, seen it too, I, yeah. I always say I'm not qualified to diagnose somebody as a narcissist. You see, the problem is I can. <laughs> <laughs> but if I'm not qualified and I've spent 35 years with couples, I don't think the person themselves looking on the internet at seven signs. And I think actually often, if you look at seven signs of anything, you can begin to fit yourself into it. I find that really unhelpful because it stops you being curious about why this is happening. So immediately you just go, oh, they're a narcissist. Oh, they're a narcissist. And you can't actually have any kind of fruitful conversation. Absolutely. And it's a shutting down of the story, I think. And what I'll often say to people in that situation is, let's put the labels aside because I don't think it's going to help your relationship. You know, let's try and understand both of your histories, both of your backgrounds, 
how that's made you the person you are today, how it affects what you bring to this relationship and how you interact with each other. And then there are times where the diagnosis, as it were, is probably quite correct. And there are certainly narcissistic traits, if not narcissistic personality disorder. Even then, I think, okay, I can view this through the lens of narcissism, but the diagnosis is only a starting point in that situation. It's a label. It's not the whole story. At that point, then I really want to understand, well, why has this person developed such a strong need to achieve and to perform? And if we even go back a little bit, it's like, what actually is pathological narcissism? And I see it really as an inability to accept yourself as ordinary and vulnerable, to expect that you would be loved unconditionally by someone. And so there's this absolute intolerance of any vulnerability or mistakes. I mean, that's what I often feel when somebody has to defend themselves so strongly that they're actually completely and utterly attacking the other person. You know, why is it so necessary for you to be right? Because couples play, I'm right and you're wrong all the time. But, you know, you're going to play this game to the absolute limit. And nearly always, it's unless they are perfect, unless they're right, they are not going to be lovable. And that is a terrible, terrible thing to carry around with you. Then when I, I do work with couples, to be honest, I think normally the individual who's more narcissistic needs some individual work first to really unpick that for them. But I think that can be helpful to them bring into couples therapy to allow both them and their partner to understand and also to develop, some people I've worked with develop a little bit of a sense of humour about it, where their partner will be able to say, you're doing the thing where you need to be right. You know, you don't need to be right around me. You know what we agreed? We would choose being married over being right. (laughs) (laughs) And you can almost sort of say, this is my narcissistic bit of me, but this is not the whole of me, that sort of idea. So instead of it actually being a label that actually takes up the whole of you, it's one part of your personality and there are all sorts of other parts of your personality that could come into play too. So how do you actually work out if you know, somebody has got narcissistic traits or they have actually got a pathological problem. How do you actually make that diagnosis? I mean, I don't really make diagnosis in that way in my work. For me, it's like, I'm not that worried about where that line is. I'm much more worried, is this a useful framework within which to understand your problem? But I mean, I think where something becomes a disorder is at the point where it becomes disabling the point where it's really causing you distress and interfering with your life. And that can be challenging in narcissism because sometimes the narcissistic person is like, I'm good with this. (laughs) Oh, I want to be the biggest narcissist on the block. Absolutely. Absolutely. And sometimes, you know, I've had people say to me, do you think I'm a narcissist? And I'm like, "Mm, yeah, I do actually. Um, and, I, and I'd couch that in, you know, let's talk about what narcissism actually is. This is not me saying that you're the bad guy. This is not a criticism. But if I look at this pattern, does the, does your the kind of way of being in the world, does it fit it? Yeah, I kind of think it, it does. Do you know, do you think it fits it? And very often the response is, yeah, cool. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> And I think what is lost in this whole debate, particularly when we get into the sort of um, 
narcissism shaming kind of category mm. is we forget there are different kinds of narcissism. So you talk about covert narcissism. Now, what's covert narcissism? I think there's like different presentations of narcissism. And so we kind of have the image of a narcissist that we all know and loathe, which is the grandiose narcissist who is you know, has a swagger, is arrogant, is a show-off, wants to be the centre of attention. They get their sense of specialness from being brilliant at something. Whereas covert narcissism is getting that sense of specialness from something else, maybe from being the most oppressed person, the one who suffered the most, the most victimised, the most overlooked, that kind of sense of unrecognised brilliance. And that's a different presentation. And it's often one that is missed because I certainly know that for me, when I'm with someone who's got that presentation, I know my own reaction to it. I feel guilty ah. because what usually happens is someone's telling me stories about being a victim and how difficult their life is. And I don't feel especially empathic. Ooh. And I'm like, that's a real, you know, so as a therapist, I'm like, I'm usually pretty empathic. I'm usually someone who responds with a lot of warmth to people's stories. And I'm not saying that that's the litmus test. If I don't feel empathic, you're a covert narcissist. But, <laughs> you know, so I have, you know, that's not where, it's not diagnostic, but it's interesting. And I'm like, yeah, it's because this person, the way that someone's telling their story is erasing of other people. And it's, it's you know, it's also about needing a constant sense of validation. I'm okay. I'm good. I am brilliant, really. Other people just don't appreciate it. And it's, it's an interesting dynamic. And I think for people who are in relationships with someone like that, it's exhausting. You know, it's really draining because you, there isn't space for your challenges, for the things that make you suffer. And you can also get the kindest narcissist, can't you? That they're competing to be the best help for everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a kind of narcissist. I mean, I don't think these are different, they're different presentations of the same thing, but it's kind of called communal narcissism. And that is getting your sense of value from being the most giving or the most charitable or the most ethical or the most moral person in the room. I mean, anyone who's ever been on a PTA will probably know what this is. And the difficult part is they then make you feel guilty because you haven't actually signed away your life to the PTA. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and there's also, again, it's very, look at me, it's centred on me and validate me. So what I, I think is a, a very useful way of looking at this that I got from you is that a narcissist wears a mask to cover up the real fallible self. And I thought that was a really good way of looking at it. So can you explain exactly what you mean by wearing a mask? Well, I mean, I'm trained in schema therapy. So we talk about modes, which I think can also be talked about as mask. And if I think about it, someone who's a narcissist, their background, their history, there's usually a lot of neglect. I mean, this is just my kind of clinical experience. There's a lot of neglect in adolescence. And I think adolescents actually are quite resourceful. And so what happens when they're severely neglected or they get a lot of outsized punishments or there's a lot of criticism or there's extraordinarily high demands on them and a lack of just love and acceptance for 
being normal. They develop ways of coping. They develop maybe the ability to be impressive, the show-off, the grandiose one, the amazing athlete, the academic achiever, the attractive one, the famous one, the Instagram perfect one. There is that kind of grandiose image that gets presented. But you also get, if that is shattered or challenged, you can also get more like defensive modes. So you can get modes like the defensive one, the angry, enraged protector who is going to defend themselves at all costs and never admit weakness or vulnerability. So that's a mode. And you also, I mean, this is painful to live with. I think it's really important to acknowledge people with NPD are really suffering. You know, there's extraordinarily high levels of depression and anxiety disorders and a huge amount of substance abuse. And I think there's also a mode of self-soothing and detaching. I'm going to detach and go and drink to oblivion or use substances or use very stimulatory behaviors because it kind of creates a sort of excitement. So using drugs like cocaine or using quite extreme or high risk sexual activities to get a kick, but in a, in a way that is more about not feeling pain and vulnerability underneath because that's intolerable. And almost the narcissist or the person with the narcissistic personality disorder almost wants you to wear a mask too. There's an, a want for you to constantly validate them and to constantly, and also to take the blame that you've got to be to blame for the, any mistakes because it can't be them, right? But then also you're not good enough. So if you're that partner, I mean, you've it's a real messy relationship. And it's interesting. I have some, since being more open about my work on social media, I've had a lot of narcissists reach out to me, including narcissists who have their own social media channels. And um, I've got friendly with some of them and it's really interesting. But, you know, one told me, and he's open about this, he's posted about it on his own channel. He said, you know, he went and talked to some of his ex-partners and he's only 24. He's a young man. And he asked his ex-partners what it was like to be in a relationship with them. And they said, well, we felt like we didn't matter, that we weren't important. We became invisible and we weren't good enough. And we tried really hard to please you, but it was never going to be enough. And we never really felt connected with you. And we felt really lonely. And he was like, I made them feel like me. Gosh, that's really really insightful, isn't it? There's a tragedy in that. It's like, you make someone feel like you. Well, we're back to the echo myth, aren't we? I mean, that both people end up in a very bad kind of place. Now, one of the things that I thought was really good about your channel is it's very easy to start thinking all about the narcissist in your life sort of kind of thing and focusing entirely on them. But what you say, and this is just absolutely beautiful, is you have to focus on yourself and learn to articulate your needs in a calm way. So can you explain what you mean by that piece of advice? Absolutely. I think this is very much about overcoming that echo side of things. It's really getting to know yourself. If you're in a relationship with someone who's very narcissistic, you really have to learn. You've sometimes been in their thrall. You've been the echo. You need to reconnect with yourself again. You need to reconnect with your own needs your own experiences. And, you know, for someone who's been in relationships with narcissists their whole life, if this is from childhood, that can be a really long journey of really getting to know themselves 
and learning how to almost reparent themselves. So they do see themselves as having importance, as being acceptable as they are, as being lovable as they are. That That's really important. For other people, it's about reclaiming that after a romantic relationship with a narcissist. So, you know, I guess what I mean by it is really getting to know yourself, getting to care about yourself, putting yourself at the forefront rather than the narcissistic person at the forefront. Because, I mean, one of the things I find most difficult when I watch the kind of content from some other channels is this, what the narcissist will do to you. Understand this about the narcissist. The narcissist will hurt you in this way. The narcissist will do this. And I'm like, and you will do what? And you will feel what? And you need what? Like, it's like, what about you? There is this absolute neglect of yourself. And I'll see actually social media channels of people who will say, I've been severely abused by a narcissist and the entire channel is about narcissists. And I'm like, where are you? This is echo all over again. Where are you? And I mean, that it is very useful to channel your own anger sometimes because it gives you the energy to possibly change, but it can also mean that you go on the attack. And I think attacking a narcissist, I would be very surprised if that's going to be a very productive way of approaching it. No, that just fuels conflict. And, you know, when I work with narcissists clinically, the only way it works is if I stay very sturdy. I have to be really in tune with my own self. And I have to be willing to tell them like, you know, I'm noticing you're talking over me quite a bit. Let's just take a moment to realise what's happening because I'm feeling a bit put down by the way you're talking to me. Let's talk about what's going on here. And approaching it with a kind of curiosity and compassion. So it's not criticism or attack. But if you don't do that, as a therapist, you end up doing the same thing. You're placating and pleasing and tiptoeing around them and the therapy's going nowhere. And you get sacked very quickly if that happens. So I think it helps, and this is this is a very controversial thing, to be sort of a little bit compassionate towards them and actually be aware that they don't specifically want to hurt you. You're sort of collateral damage. Why is that a very controversial thing to say? Well, I think I mean, this is very controversial. So, I mean, I think this depends on whether you want to stay in a relationship with a narcissist. I'd never say to someone, you need to be compassionate to someone who's abusing you. In fact, in some ways, I think, no, you need to be compassionate to yourself first. You know, start there. And being compassionate certainly does not mean you should stay in a relationship where you're being consistently hurt by the other person. There isn't a willingness to engage with you. There's not enough good in the relationship for you to stay. You know, there's a sort of reality to that. But I think if you are going to have any kind of relationship with someone who's narcissistic or you're going to work in therapy with someone who's narcissistic, you do need to have compassion for the suffering part that's underneath some of these very difficult coping modes. And to understand that this person has suffered, that there is a background here, there are reasons, and also to have empathy with the coping modes in the sense of, yeah, I understand why you show off. I understand why you put me down. I understand why it's difficult to acknowledge a mistake. But the centering part, and this is the one that is the really difficult place to reach and why I think, you know, if you are in a relationship with a narcissist, you need help and support, is you need to explain what you need in a sort of specific sort of kind of way. And, you know, 
stand up for the thing that you need. And I think it has to be very specific, like, I need you not to talk over me, for example, rather than you need to show me respect. I don't know what that is, but I do know when I'm talking over somebody. Yeah, that can be really helpful. It can also, I think, be really helpful. There needs to be a bit of reality here because the other person may not meet your needs. They may not choose to meet your needs. They may not be able to do that. So there's a kind of need to have a bit of a reality check. You know, narcissists are not one thing. It exists on a spectrum. There are degrees of severity. Some narcissists I've worked with are actually really responsive to specific requests. Believe it or not, they actually want to please their partners because they get validation from doing that. And that's, you know, there can be a kind of good aspect to that. But certainly not saying it in a critical way, like you always talk over me and, uh, you know, it's like, I need you not to talk over me. I need you to listen to me with this. Or I would really like you to listen to me and just be empathic. You don't have to fix this problem. That's what I value from you. It's not the fixing, it's the listening right now. And other times, you know, when I work with adult children of narcissistic parents, I'll often say, think about your boundaries and what is going to help foster a better dynamic with your parents, which might mean don't go home for two weeks over Christmas. Yes. I know they really want you and they have this idea of this perfect, picture perfect family Christmas. You and I both know that isn't happening. Far better to go and have a few hours that you enjoy than to go for two weeks and never want to see them again. And another really common one I'll suggest to people is when do they start drinking? Because why don't you visit them? Why don't you visit them? If they start drinking in the evening, why don't you make sure that you're on your way home (laughs) after lunch? Yeah. After the coffee is drunk, that's the time for you to be heading out the door. Absolutely. Or maybe you think it doesn't work to be sitting in my mother's house listening to her constantly. Maybe we go out somewhere. Maybe we go out for a walk. Maybe we even just go to the cinema and catch a movie because then we get to spend time together. It's relaxed. It's a little bit more fun. And there isn't that intense conversation. So there's ways of kind of creating a little bit more distance that actually supports the relationship. So I'll kind of get people to think about those things when they're ready. But to do that well, you've got to be really tuned into yourself. And you've also got to be able to tolerate if the other person isn't happy with you. And that is really important, isn't it? So you really do need to have your feet on the ground so that you've got not only good boundaries, but you've got good coping mechanisms that you can hear the criticism without actually thinking it must be true, for example. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it's, it's allowing that to go over your head and, and also allowing yourself to say, I don't think that's true, mum. Mm. You know, I mean, the one thing I often suggest to people who have narcissistic parents, particularly mothers, it seems to come up more with mothers and their mother's very critical. I'll often say to them, why don't you smile at her and say, I love how you always look out for me. You want me to be the best that I can be. And I appreciate that. That's what you're doing. I understand that. Completely get it. And you know what? I think you've done a good job because look at me. I think I'm pretty good. You've wow. done well. You can relax, mum. Relax. That is a beautiful script. Thank you very much for that. <laughs> yeah. Now I'll often say, play with that. Find a way to say that in your language with your parent. 
So how do you put that in, if you're the partner of somebody, what would the equivalent of that be that allows you to say, I disagree with you in an agreeable manner? Could you give me an example? Yes. Okay. You know, you've been told that uh, you're sloppy yet again, sort of kind of thing, that you're leaving things around the place and you're not meeting the high cleanliness standards of the partner. Yeah, that would be... I think a, famili- a familiar, <laughs> familiar one. <laughs> you know, I, I, I would not be defensive. Like, you know what? Yeah, yeah, I'm sloppy. Sometimes I do leave things around and you're really concerned to make sure we have a good, clean living environment. And I really, really appreciate that. And I'm also human. And sometimes I'm going to leave a mug around and sometimes things aren't going to be what they are. But I'd like to hope that in our relationship, we have a little bit of tolerance for each other. And that is beautiful as well. Thank you for that. And we're going to go sort of granular and look at a particular case. I don't think it's actually helpful to try and guess whether there's narcissism involved in here, but it's actually dealing with a high drama kind of relationship. And I think you know about high drama relationships. (laughs) And we'll be doing that in just a moment. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. So there are all sorts of ways of getting involved with The Meaningful Life. You can join our Substack newsletter. You'll find details of how to do that on my website, www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcasts. You can become a supporter of The Meaningful Life and get all the bonus material and have my eternal gratitude. And you can also find out how to send a letter in with a dilemma for me to share with my guests here on the podcast. And this is the one we've got today. My ex seems addicted to drama. There's always someone that she's fighting with or angry or upset about because they've done something in her view that is horrible or double-crossing or whatever. More times than not, it is me that gets the brunt of her anger. I tried to stay because we have a child together, but I found myself dreading waking up every morning. I would stop on the way home, shaking. When I started getting panic attacks, on one occasion I was rushed to hospital because I thought I was having a heart attack, I knew I could carry on no more, although I feel guilty about leaving. Our son is five years old and I have him to stay with me as often as possible, but sometimes she makes it hard and is forever changing times and dates, which is difficult because my work is not that flexible. She has another child with another man and I saw the same pattern before until he gave up and buggered off. I don't want to do the same, but some days it is really tempting. Some days she's also nice and suggests getting back together again, but I've fallen for that one before. What should I do? This is such a classic echo situation, isn't it? Mm. Um, like, this guy's with this woman and she's really dominating the conversation. And it feels like he's lost himself. He's quite invisible here. He's just there to be the sounding board for her and all of the drama and the conflict that she ends up in. So I can't, I really felt for him, actually, because, you know, clearly this is really distressing to be just this anxious. And then I thought, but where are you? What do you want? Good question. I'm like, what, what do you want here? And what I, I think it'd be very helpful 
for him to think, what are my priorities? Which clearly is the son. He wants time with the son and to maintain that relationship. And it may also be kind of a peaceful life. I was going to say that. I think a lot of men in general opt for a peaceful life over everything else. And I think... (laughs) I think that's what I think that's what he does want. How, how do you get that? It's difficult because his ex-partner is creating drama and may well quite intentionally create some drama around the visits because that's how she gets his attention and his a reaction from him. I mean, the first thing I would suggest to him, which is very pragmatic, would be: Have you spoken to a solicitor? Are there some formal contact arrangements here? Because I think that can be, there's a risk in doing that because it can create high conflict. So I wouldn't necessarily suggest take this to court, but I would get some advice about what would you should expect, what would be a reasonable agreement. And I would try to, as far as possible, get some sort of written agreement around what everyone expects. And the way maybe to put that to his ex-partner would be, you and I are both really concerned to be good parents. We both want what's best for our son. And I want to make sure that I'm there for him, that I'm in his life, and that we are both working together as best we can in his best interests. And I know that's what you want to. And so I'd like us to come to an agreement so we both know where we're at. We both have expectations because I don't want you to have to look after him because I have to work and we haven't communicated about when I'm working and you know where I can and can't be flexible. So kind of something like that and really stating the intention at the outset, which is not, how can you do this to me? You've changed the plan again. This is so, so unfair. Really the intention is to create a, an arrangement that works for the son and works for both of them. And then I would also be thinking of reducing, he he doesn't want to be in a relationship with her in the long term. So reducing contact and think about those pick up and drop off situations. You don't want those to last a long time. Make them quick. And how do you, how do you enforce those boundaries? You know, it's very difficult. Sometimes it's just doing it, you know, so it might be, you know, you can be a little clever about this. You know, you make an arrangement. I don't know. You're going to drop off at 10 o'clock on a Saturday morning. You're like, oh, you know what? I've booked a play date for half past 10. So thank you so much for dropping him off. See you later. You know, so kind of actually being quite maybe a little bit devious <laughs> of making sure that you, you cut off some of those opportunities if if you can. And it may also be like, enjoy your day. Off you go. I hope you have a wonderful day. Enjoy. You've looked after him so well all week. You really deserve this time to yourself. It's a little bit flattering. You mm-hmm. might have to hold your nose a little bit while you say it, but, you know, it's avoiding criticising someone in this situation because it's going to get such a strong reaction. And they're possibly also fishing for a conflict as well. Yeah. So avoid, and while well, it's fishing for a conflict and it's also sometimes about, you know, there is a sort of like sense of, if this person is narcissistic, there is often a sense of everyone hates me nobody likes me. They all resent me. So I'm going to poke and poke and poke to test it. And of course it all blows up and there is a lot of conflict. And then it's like, see, everyone hates me. I'm such a victim. I'm so 
you know, everyone treats me so, so unfairly. So it's really trying to evade that dynamic if you can and using sort of saying very calm, use praise <laughs> use, and don't take the, don't join the dance. You don't have to join the dance. You know, you can say, you know what, we've had a heated relationship and I'm feeling myself getting a little bit heated now. You know, and this is particularly when they're really beginning to blow. If you can stay perfectly calm and say, we are both, we're both getting a little hot under the collar and I'm, I don't think it's good for either of us. And I, I also know you don't think it's good for either of us. Let's take a break because I'm getting a little triggered and I don't, I don't want that for you or for me or for our son. Or for our son to see it either. Mm. And sometimes when people are fishing for a fight, what they're looking for is attention in some kind of way, and they're looking for negative attention. So actually that sort of praise, (laughs) praising what you like, even if you can't actually see it, can sometimes give them the attention without the fight. Absolutely. Absolutely. You have to think, you have to think clever, don't you? You have to really be centered in yourself. You have to really know yourself. And I think that is why this question of what do I need? Who am I? Why am I so easily triggered by this thing? You know, why if somebody waves a red flag at me, do I always have to charge at it? You know, I think really understanding yourself is important because ultimately you can control your own behaviour. You're never going to be able to control anybody else's behaviour, particularly people who are drama queens or drama kings or whatever. Mm. You're never going to be able to control them. But you, as you say, you don't have to join the dance. Yeah, absolutely. And you can also dance differently than other people do. Because you can bet when this person raises a red flag, most people charge, right? Uh, the invitation is there. Don't have yeah. to accept it, you know. But I think also sometimes when I suggest this stuff to people, they're like, this is gross. You're telling me to flatter them, praise them. It's completely inauthentic. And I'm like, no, no, you've got to realize this is actually about serving you. It's not about serving them. It's about creating a relationship context that is as peaceful as you can get it to be with this person. And and I think you have to, when you do praise, you have to praise things that you genuinely feel. So, you know, they probably do care deeply about their child, for example. Yeah. So I think it has to be genuine, even if you're not actually feeling it at this precise moment because you've been triggered. But, you know, in general times, you do think that they want the best for their child Mm. or, as you said with the, the mother, that they want the best for you even if they're doing it in a really destructive way. Absolutely. You know, you can, when you're actually with your two feet on the ground and you're centred, you do actually feel that. You might not at this Mm. precise second, but you can be genuine about it because you feel about it that way when you're in centred mode, feet both on the ground. Yeah. Well, I think as well, the language of modes can be very helpful there too, because we all have modes, right? And, you know, I'll often talk to people about, well, okay, you have your little vulnerable child mode. You have your own, well, we all have our own experiences from childhood that may lead us to certain coping modes. That, and maybe one of this person's coping modes is to try to please all the time, try to placate and keep the other person happy. It'd be kind of interesting to know where that's from in some ways, but it's also, it's a mode. Another person's mode might actually be to charge and to have the fight, <laughs> which is also a mode. And I'll often, with people in these situations, I'll often almost do an imagery exercise. I'm like, well, let's take your little self, that little vulnerable you, and put them somewhere safe. They don't have to deal with this. You've got a healthy, sturdy adult side that can deal with it. And let's 
tell your coping modes that they need to take a back seat here. I don't want them at the steering wheel. Other modes are available. Yeah. And I'm like, where is your healthy, sturdy adult you? That, let's nurture that side. The sturdy adult you. And I hope that you've got in contact with that listening to this podcast. We're beginning to run out of time. So I have to ask you as a witness on The Meaningful Life, what makes your life meaningful? Well, yeah, I thought about this. And I think, first of all, relationships, that my closest relationships and friendships are absolutely pivotal to a meaningful life. Like, why have anything else if you don't have those? And then I think meaningful work is really important to me to do something that's challenging. And I certainly went and chose a challenging specialty. <laughs> so I don't like to do the easy things. So, uh, you know, the, doing something that's meaningful and challenging. Why do you think you chose this? Because ultimately it chose you, but you also accepted the invitation to the dance. What, what is it in, in your childhood that made you accept this invitation, do you think? I don't know. <laughs> I had very, um, I grew up in Northern Ireland in quite a religious context with a lot of dogmatism. And I think my rebellion against that has been to seek not to be dogmatic and to seek to see things that are maybe not obvious initially. I'm like, let's not judge this prematurely. I grew up around huge amounts of judgments and stereotypes. And when I came to England at the <laughs> at 18, I was shocked to find that not everyone thought the same way as I did. But in, in the best possible way, I was also endlessly fascinated and it opened my eyes. And I think that side of it, like we have this story about narcissism that's so one-dimensional. I do think what attracts me to this in many ways is the fact we don't understand this phenomenon. We have such a simplistic view and it, there is an attraction to not seeing this as black and white. And that is also part of your journey, getting away from black and white thinking as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Fortunately, the conversation doesn't have to end here if you are a supporter of The Meaningful Life, because what I'm going to be talking next to Ruth about is dating again after a painful breakup, because you've been fishing in these waters where, you know, dogma has been leaping around and uh, waving its knickers in the air, so to speak. And it can leave you really, really hurt and finding dating again really difficult. So we're going to talk about that. We're also going to find out the three things that uh, she knows deep down to be true. So if you'd like to hear the bonus material, you can subscribe directly via Apple or Spotify. We're also available on Amazon Music. And if you want to become a supporter of The Meaningful Life and get access that way, here are the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. 
At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Collick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.